Okay, we are on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to The Wolfcast. Today, I am joined by Florian Grayo and Jan Kasteri, the founding partners of Astoria VC. I got past both of the names and nobody got hurt, so that's a good thing. Florian and Jan, it's great to have you both on the show. How are you guys doing today? Hi, Michael. Hi, Jan. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Hi, hi Michael. Hi, Florian. Uh, we, we're doing great. And actually, Florian uh, said hi to me because we were not sitting in the same offices. We're actually quite uh, one apart from another. Yeah. And for the people that can't see, I was going to say it's slightly disconcerting because it kind of looks like you're in the same office. But again, this reminds me of one of those quizzes they used to have in like the books I used to read when I was a kid. Like, how are these two pictures different kind of thing? And you have to look pretty hard to figure <laughs> it out. But <laughs> the rest of the guests won't know that anyway. Florian, why don't we start with you? Let's get a little bit of your background, and then we'll go to then we'll go to Jan before we get into the main topics. Yeah, so long story short, I've been investing in tech startup for close to fifteen years now, uh, and I started in the uh, insure tech scene six years ago when I joined Axa Ventures, which was launching back uh, at that time. And by the way, that was the very beginning of insure tech. Uh, I mean, the uh, the hashtag on social network. So. I guess I can say that uh, I've been navigating that scene in SureTech across Europe since inception. Awesome. It's 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 a long story because I originally come from Poland and uh, I was already uh, engaged into a few uh, ventures. I was an early uh, employee of, of of a successful Polish startup, but then I moved to Paris for personal reasons. And when you get to Paris and you want to work in finance insurance is so huge that you cannot uh, it's, it's 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 quite easy to get uh, into it so i had a chance to work uh, for euler hermes which is a trade credit insurer and together with um, two of my colleagues we launched uh, their innovation team called euler hermes digital agency but then you know things move on we created a team uh, from three people to 50 people globally we had some people in asia as well wow. um, and uh, actually when florian moved out from axa it was around the same moment I moved out from Euler Hermes, and you know he was uh, he was looking at uh, startups to invest in seed stages, and that was also the um, stage where we operated at uh, at Euler Hermes. We were building new products, we were recreating the team, we were building new ventures for Euler Hermes, a data lab, a blockchain lab. So basically, uh, we combined the two caskets uh, together to create Astoria VC and invest in a seed early stage startups in Europe in InsureTech. And how did you two meet each other? In other words, you know, Florian was at, as at AXA and you at Healer Hermes, you said. So where did the roads cross? Yeah, so, so basically, uh, you know, at the very beginning, six years ago, it was a very small uh, scene, especially in France. And I would say that AXA was the most advanced in terms of investment. Healer Hermes was the most advanced from, for in, in terms of uh, internal innovation. So it was quite natural that we were meeting at meetup, at events, uh, sharing thoughts on social networks. So that's how we uh, get to know each other. Um, and then we realized that actually we were doing the same uh, or pursuing the same uh, target in a different way, uh, investing on one side, uh, innovation from the inside, uh, on on Jan's uh, hand, um, basically it was the same uh, the same topic. So that's where we uh, uh, decided to uh, team up together to make it happen at scale. Although there is a person, although there is a person who actually put us close together when when Florian was uh, seeking uh, new ventures, the person if listens to the podcast will know who who <laughs> we're uh, talking about. So um, all the best to that to that, <laughs> to that person who shall remain nameless. So one of the things that you said, Jan, was, you know, ventures, building ventures in Europe, in InsureTech. And every time I hear, I almost have like this, what's it called? Post-traumatic stress syndrome, a little bit of PTSD every time I hear the, word, hear the word Europe. And I'll tell you why. When I moved to Morgan Stanley in Tokyo in 1990, I had really never lived outside my own country. So this was a while ago, yeah? And my first business trip was to London, and I'd never been to London before. And I remember sitting on the trading desk in London. This actually happened to me. I was still not 25 years old, and I was so excited to just be in Europe for the first time. Like, I was just so excited about it. And I remember telling my colleagues, you know, and a bunch of guys my age, right, between 25 and 27, and if you know what the city's like, particularly back then in, like, 1990, you can imagine the types of guys that were sitting on the trading desk. Anyway... I remember sitting to them and they were like, so how was your trip and what do you think? And you just got to the office, blah, blah, blah. And I said, guys, I cannot tell you 
I've never been to Europe before, and I'm just so excited to be here. And they all kind of looked at each other side to side, and I'm like, I wonder what I said wrong. And they said, uh, you're in London. You still haven't been to Europe. <laughs> but you know what? This is this is so close to what we sometimes observe. Um, Tell me. Not on, not, yeah, yeah, 100%. Not only when, uh, what, uh, when looking at the insurtech scene, but uh, more general. You know, if you take, um, if you take um, startup investments, uh, you see a lot of VC funds uh, um, which are... Uh, you know, US-based or coming from Asia, investing in Europe, and they say, okay, let's open an office in London. But actually, there is this Anglo-Saxon axis between um, uh, in Europe. You have UK, US, Australia, there's India somewhere. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's, um, there are even insurtech investors from Australia investing um, uh, through London. Um, and then, you know, just on the other side of the, um, of the La Manche Canal, you have France, uh, you have Germany, you have so many different countries, you have different nationalities, different cultures, uh, you have different currencies still. And each of this country brings a lot to the table. So, you know, in some places uh, they are different in terms of regulations, uh, um, they are different in terms of uh, how you support entrepreneurs. Investing in Europe or talking about Europe for London is very limited. So we really invite people to have a deeper look at uh, other countries. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found over time in Florida, and you can give me your opinion on this as well, but one of the things that I found is that when American firms talk about sort of overseas expansion, what they're really talking about is what you said. I, I don't use the term Anglo-Saxon, but then again, I'm not European, so I don't think about it in those terms. But I will say this, they expand to the places that are easy, where they don't have to learn another language, and where they don't have to learn about another culture. Because not only, I mean, the EU is a fascinating place, but France is definitely different than Germany. Germany is definitely different than Spain, which is different than Italy. And then you have Estonia and all of the Eastern European countries and Poland and even into Russia. They're all very different, even though they maintain sort of an economic relationship with each other. And I think for the most part, like when you walk over the border from one country to another, if you don't understand the culture and you don't speak the language, you're just going to have problems. So going to England and going to Australia, which is literally like on the other side of the planet, feels easier, I think, to American companies, even though it may not be the biggest bang for the buck, right? What are there, 450 million people now in, in the Eurozone? It's a, big, it's a big economy. That's really where you should be going, but it's hard. And I love the fact that people don't go to the places where it's hard because the people that can figure it out have much bigger opportunities. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And, and by the way, that's uh, the rational be beyond uh, our, let's say, uh, investment scope. When we uh, set it up, Astoria VC, uh, as the uh, most active investor across Europe that was not only on the paper. And right now, uh, if you have a look at our portfolio, uh, we are covering six countries across Europe, which I believe uh, in terms of insurtech is the most diverse in terms of geography and um, and ASEAN uh, highlighted earlier, the truth is that most of investors coming from the US are or have or had a footprint in the UK. Then they try to cover uh, the uh, continental Europe scene. And the truth is that they are more and more, let's say, setting up teams on the ground. That's exactly what you mentioned, Michael. Right. Uh, it's that, uh, again, uh, covering Europe from the UK doesn't work. But I guess it's almost the same in every local areas because we yeah. see a lot of corporates, for instance, investing in startup. And the truth is that even those that have a global footprint or at least a global mandate to invest across Europe, at the end of the day, most of the time they invest locally. So one of our challenge uh, was to be a true European player, meaning a multi-local player. And I, and I guess that our background helps. I have a, a deep uh, connection and deep network in Western Europe, whereas uh, Jan has uh, deeper roots in Eastern Europe. So even in terms of network, we were highly complementary and it helps a lot, again, being multi-local. That's one of our challenges. And, and again, after three years of activity at Astoria, I, I believe uh, that uh, we have shown our capacity uh, to be connected with every local ecosystem. 
And, and you know, it's um, th th there are reasons um, for such positioning. Uh, you, you know, it would be very easy to as to look at European insurtech through the lenses of UK, Germany, and France, which are the largest markets, the most money, um, the most potential customers. But then you go to Eastern Europe. Uh, you look at Estonia. Estonia has, I would say. Uh, five or six unicorns, or unicorns right now, and they are of uh, they are the size of the city of Paris. You know the, the the entire nation. To give you the perspective, you have a lot of business angel money, and these are angels who created um, transferwise. Um, right uh, right now, there is actually an Estonian insurtech which is established in London. Uh, which is which became a unicorn this year. So you have a lot of people, a lot of business angels, smart money right there. You have a lot of developers a bit more south, you know, but yeah. um, uh, other Baltic countries in the Ukraine, in Poland, in Belarus. Um, then you look from another um, lens, which is, uh, you know, each country, even among the, the three big ones, has its own specifics. Like uh, if you look at actuaries in, uh, in, in Europe, majority of actuaries are actually based uh, in London, uh, around the London market, uh, the, 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 the Lloyds of London market. Uh, if you look at registered actuaries in Europe, it's like 20 out of 30,000 actuaries are based in the UK. So you would know that this kind of startups, which are doing data science for some uh, corporate risks, some, uh, um, uh, some bizarre types of uh, very difficult specific risks, they would be based there. Then France, for instance, have, has a very strong um, health insurance uh, ecosystem due to you know some 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 regulated employee plans each market is different you need to look at each of them and understand this underlying um, characteristics yeah and look i'll give you the equivalency out here so many companies from the united states will settle in singapore which is an island that has five and a half million people on it and uh, you know sort of a well-respected global banking system and legal system and yet the opportunity for growth in Singapore is minimal, again, because there are only five and a half million people there. And if you just go a little bit further north, you have Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, 270, 370. I'm doing some math, 330. At least another 500 million, at least another half a billion people. And yet everybody runs to Singapore. And I say the same thing about Singapore that you say about the UK. You can have your team on the ground there, and that's great. And the lifestyle is easier there than it is here, although much more expensive. But the real opportunities are in the places where nobody else is going. Yeah. And that's, that's what I love. Do you feel, do you guys feel like, even though you've only, you said you've been around for three years, Astoria, right? Do you, do you feel like you're kind of investment leaders in a way because of the way you approach the market is very specific, but also very different? So that when you invest in a company, it gets a little bit of extra gravitas and then some foreign investors from outside of Europe will then look and say, well, if those guys are in, Maybe we should be in the next round. Does that happen? Yeah, actually, that's what we are still building right now. But uh, obviously, that's part of our investment thesis. Um, again, we are among few investors only focusing on insurtech. Right. If you have a look at this uh, insurtech scene across Europe, most of the investors at early stage are either seed, um, seed fund investing in any kind of technology. In anything, yeah. Yeah, or you have fintech players, which are obviously considering insurtech as one sub-vertical among others. Right. And then you have corporates. But the truth is that they are looking for much more than just financial return. They are looking for strategic uh, partnership, for right. uh, understanding of what's happening, innovation topic, and so on. Long story short, there are only few people that are doing only insurance on the ground. That's what we are doing. And, and I believe that this is one reason why founders agrees to have uh, Astoria uh, in their cap table, not only because of the money, but as well because we are providing a deep understanding of the uh, uh, insurance uh, ecosystem and insurance industry. And beyond that is, first, we have a deep network. We know almost each and every insurance company across Europe. That's an unfair advantage. And the second point is that we know perfectly the, the pain points of insurance. I mean, does that matters? Does that are, let's say, uh, or have been tackled in the, the recent year without any success? We know every, everything about that. Again, we've been running Astoria for three years, but the truth is, is that we've been navigating the European insurtech scene since inception. And you can't fake an interest in this, right? In other words, if you're a general seed stage fund, 
you can go to an insure tech and say, we're deeply committed to this. But if you've got like 99 other portfolio companies that have nothing to do with it, even if they're in the fintech space, it's just harder to, I don't want to say believe, but it just kind of is what it is. But when you two show up, they know that like, this is your thing, right? So they can commiserate with you along with just have you as an investor as well. Yeah, that's the again. That's the unfair advantage, yeah. and that uh, that really helps, especially when it's your first fund, uh, and when you have, let's say, uh, not a huge uh, history like uh, I don't know uh, uh, the the guys that have been uh, doing VCs for for years with their own brand, um, and and I think that this is the perfect match uh, with the investor we like investing or co-investing with other funds, and exactly. usually they see ourselves as the one ticking the box of insurance saying, okay, Astoria agrees to invest. It means that it validates the insurance uh, uh, aspect of the deal. The angle of the deal, yeah. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's very nice for you to say um, that we bring uh, added value and that we may be considered as, um, uh, as a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a fund to look at the same deals with. Yeah, uh, this is uh, this is an ongoing work, so it's not uh, it's not something given. So we start no. by educating the market. We try to educate uh, other VCs as well. When we have a startup that's coming to us, uh, it's right now it's not even for only our portfolio startups, but uh, other insurtech startups. Uh, for instance, um, you want to get your uh, an Estonian startup. That's a case from last month. Um, there was an Estonian startup interested in the Polish market, so we helped them create the CRM of corporates in Poland, and we started to do introductions. We started to do uh, to do the outreach, and once you know we invest in uh, in a company, we basically uh, unlock. All the um, uh, all the actions that we are able to take. You need uh, insurance capacity. We can get you insurance capacity. You need a CRM in one country, uh, in Europe or another. We can get this uh, this for you. Um, so it's it's not something that is done. It's uh, it's probably rather a, a long term objective that we have in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I also like the fact that because you can see what's going on in the rest of the world when it comes to insurtech in a way, and you have all this information. In the listed markets, if you have sort of inf if you have information that nobody else has, it, it may be this sort of unfair advantage, like front running, right? But in the non-listed markets, all this extra information that you have, the rest of the world then is if they follow you, it's great for you. It's great for the companies in which you invest. It's great from a valuation perspective. As people start sort of chasing the deals that you're in, it helps everybody that's involved. So I think that that's kind of cool. I want to ask you about this though. What do you look at in the insure tech space in particular? Like, where do you think that these big insurance companies or incumbent insurance companies are really having issues and pain points? I mean, Florin, you mentioned this earlier. What are these pain points? Where are they being challenged? And how does it manifest itself in what is getting built and what should get built? Well, I, I believe that the, the starting point, and, and that's our mantra at Astoria VC, in investing in tech startup to build the next insurance generation. We strongly believe that corporates, they have a lot of strengths, but one obvious uh, weakness that they have and, and challenge they face is the tech challenge. And beyond the tech challenge, there is the HR challenge mm -hmm. to, uh, let's say, be able to attract talents that will help them build the right technologies. And retain, Hence, and retain. And, and right retain, attract, and, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the two challenge, <laughs> and and by and and by the way, that that's where we are investing um, again, believing that at the end of the day they will uh, come back to the market looking for technology that are available off the shelf. That that's where we are investing a lot of technology, where we have founder with the right, let's say, uh, background and mix of background between insurance knowledge and tech background and 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 here our last uh, investment that we announced uh, Rizvolf in uh, IT based on time that's exactly the case they are building René and Thomas the founders um, they have the background in insurance they have the background in, uh, in data science in building algorithm and what they are doing is that they are enabling insurance and reinsurance company right. cover IT based on time through a parametric uh, offer. But that's just technology they are renting uh, to, to, the, to the corporates. And obviously, if you take that example, I'm pretty sure that we will see a lot of players trying to build this kind of technology internally. 
that's the usual move. When you have the build, the make or buy challenge, usually corporate go for build, then they fail, then they come back to the market. That's where we are investing because we know that at the end of the day, they will uh, come back to this kind of external technologies. And obviously we try to anticipate where there is the most of value. So I love when this happens actually, and you bring up such a great point. You're a startup company or a small company, you have some advantage technology, excuse me, or service, and you go to a big corporate or incumbent company, you say, you know, we'd love to partner with you to use our technology that does X. And they say, that's great. We know way more about this than you do. We're just going to, we're already building this internally. We've got this nailed. Don't worry about it. Because when they come back to you, and this is the frustration of startups too, because a startup will walk away and think, I know I'm doing this better. I know I'm doing it way better. But I need, I need to be able to live, right, until they come back and come to their senses. Because a year later, when an incumbent company, no matter which industry they're in, comes back to you, now they really need what you have. Because now they've been through the process of trying to bake that cake and the yeast will not rise. Do you know what I mean? They're just like, Ugh, I'm never going to be able to bake this. We need to go get those guys, right? It's really interesting what you say because, you know, we all measure startups which fail. No one measures corporate projects which fail. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, if you had such measure, my bet is that uh, actually there's more corporate projects which fail. What we see right now is that... Um, there are a few across Europe very advanced innovation teams, which basically says working with startups brings talents, which will never hire, which will never retain. It brings technology, which will be maintained and um, uh, developed further uh, along the years, not just abandoned somewhere in the corner. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of incentives of working with startups. And But the truth is that, you know, the most uh, critical period for the startups, which are building, for instance, B2B SaaS, is the first two, three years, because this is the moment where it's very ca capital intense. You need to hire the tech people to build the technology. You, you need to find an insurer or two insurers who wants to run pilots with you, even though you haven't any proven track record. Yeah, you need to get capacity. Yes, exactly. We have a lot of briefs from insurers asking us, we would like to work with startups which are easy to work with. And one <laughs> of the first factor that they look at is are these startups older than three years? Because if they are, it means that probably uh, they haven't died yet. You know, they probably delivered something. We can work with them. They will handle a, a partnership like this. Right. So you need to. We need to have this um, this two approaches. Um, the, the the insurers which are um, innovative enough uh, to be and and you know courageous enough to work with very early startups. And this is a case, for instance, of uh, Wacom, which is uh, uh, ex-La Parisienne. They are working with startups on quantitative basis. But then you have the second um, uh, part of the market, the insurers, which are um, which wants to work with startups, but they want to be assured that this startup will deliver this kind of ROI uh, and they will deliver. It will not fail in the meantime. Right. I've always thought and I've been a follower of the venture capital world since 1997, let's say, 1997, 1998. And as I've watched it grow and expand, right, I've always thought that there should be a deep sort of data-driven way for startups to get invested. And, and I'll tell you why I've thought this. One of the things we did on the trading desk is we do all this backtesting, right? So we look at every trade that ever happened in a specific stock or security and then a bunch of them together Look at the way they traded against each other and then try to come up with trading strategies or at least understand what the market was doing. Now, there are fewer companies in which to do this, but you mentioned this whole idea of, you know, we look at startup companies that die. We get questions about this. Is there a way to gather all this data around startups or in this case, insurtex, and then be able to make sort of macro and micro level decisions about what is good to invest in, what is d difficult to invest in, and then work across the ecosystem to try to find the best opportunities. Does that make sense? And to understand better why things survive and why things die? Yeah, that, that, that's quite interesting that you raised that point because, I, I mean, the, the VC space, we are all investing in tech startup, but the VC uh, industry is quite manual right now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, since the very beginning of Astoria VC, we decided to have our own kind of technology, internal technology, because we believe that it would be an unfair advantage. Plus, 
as we are, uh, let's say, very vertical, very specific, investing only in insurtech across Europe at seed stage, meaning that we aim to track and to spot startup before anybody else. We have developed our own automated scouting technology. So have basically you? a bot that is, yes, we did. And, 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 and the rationale behind was that actually, again, if you'd like to spot startup before anybody else, you, can, you cannot do it manually. So we have a bot that is crawling, let's say, public information on social networks, newspaper, more generally on the internet, 24 uh, 7 and it's raising this kind of startup. Whatever the stage, whatever the maturity, um, whatever they have raised money or not, and that helps a lot. Plus, we've been able to track back 10 years of insurtech across Europe, and that helps us, again, spot where startups have failed, where startups are successful, where startups were funding in terms of geography, maturity, uh, value chain, and so on. And this is the data uh, we are leveraging on top of our understanding that we gather from our discussion with corporate. Because that's the other side of our vertical approach, is that we have regular discussion with almost, almost every insurance company uh, across Europe. Hence, we can feel what's uh, the, the the key topic. I will take two examples here. Last year, after the lockdown period, most of European uh, insurance companies were after what we call augmented insurer, meaning technology to enhance their own employees. Because what? They That's the word I just wrote down, by the way, was augmented. Go ahead. I like it. Yes. And actually, it was really funny. That was a topic that we were covering since inception. Again, our B2B slash enterprise software core uh, investment thesis is enabling employees with technology. So right. augmented insurer right. have been on the ground for, for years at Astoria VC, but the truth is that it requires the market to face a lockdown period where brick and mortar shops were closed and where having a network of agencies at the corner of the street doesn't help. And then they were looking for this kind of solution. And this year, quite funnily, we have again a hot topic, which is open insurance. It's not coming from nowhere first, and obviously it's coming from the open banking trend, yep. but most of all is coming from embedded insurance. We see more and more platforms, uh, marketplaces, e-commerce websites that are offering insurance product directly embedded in the sales journey, and it works uh, uh, at scale again. And their figures are huge, which puts a bit of pressure on insurance companies that are now wondering, okay, how can I, as an insurance company, uh, embed my product? How, should I or when shall I embrace open insurance? So that's the other topic right now. Uh, and, uh, and again, combining data, 10 years of data, with these kind of trends that we see on the market helps a lot, at least better understand the needs from the market. So there are some very important subtleties that you've raised on two kind of related topics, but not that may not seem sort of fundamentally directly related. The first is this idea of augmentation. There's a massive concern in the world, right? Not just in the insurance and insure tech space about how automation, artificial intelligence and machine learning would eliminate, you know, humans from, from employment. And one of the things, one of my philosophies about this is sure, through any sort of technology, technological transition, we saw it during the industrial age. We see it, in, we saw it at the beginning of the information age. We'll see it now during what I'll call the automation age. People, a lot of people will lose their jobs and kind of do new jobs, but it's not going to be massive unemployment. It's not going to happen that fast. But the idea here is that artificial intelligence and this idea to augment employees is going to take great employees and not replace them, but supercharge them so that they can do amazing sales as opposed to sort of, well, you know, so-so, comme si, comme ça, sales, yeah? So because that, that, that's something actually that's really important. Do you get a sense, because I want to talk about embedded in a second, but do you get a sense that there are some employees that are scared, right? That they may be at risk. And do you see a bifurcation between those that are like, oh my gosh, I, I need to know how to use this technology and the others who look at it and go, wait a second, I'm going to get a better gun kind of thing. Do you see that? Florian, do you want to take it or, or, or shall I? Uh, go ahead. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. And um, let's start by saying that insurance industry is moving so slowly that no one will be hurt in the coming years yeah it's 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 really a shift but rather a generational shift so uh, but if you look there is a website um, which i recommend you to have a look at 
uh, called willrobotstakemyjob.com. <laughs> and majority of, uh, of the jobs in the insurance um, value chain are at risk of um, 98%, 99% uh, to be um, replaceable by AI within the next five years. Uh, for instance, one of uh, such jobs is um, insurance clerk or insurance agent broker. The fact is that there is no way to replace a broker or an agent because these are actually the guys who, th this is the blood of the insurance sector. So these are the guys who are taking the products, which is a push product, and they are using all the uh, means to push this product and make people buy, the, buy, buy it. And for instance, here, what we decided to do is we know that there are new brokers which are which are uh, going to, 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 to be created, like BlaBlaCar, uh, the, 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 the car sharing um, uh, platform in, uh, in France has became a broker already. But first step that needs to be taken is to, to, to give weapons uh, to, to the current brokers. And for instance, we invested in uh, Zelros, a French company building AI for the sales uh, process. You take uh, Zelros technology and next day your conversion rates increase by 20%. This is as simple as this, you know. And there is more and more technologies like this for uh, risk underwriting, for uh, actuarial tech, uh, for actuarial talents, um, for claims processors, for everyone. They are not yet replaceable, but they are being enhanced. Yeah, so the blah blah cars thing, we should probably explain to people what blah blah cars does, right? And why it's significant that they're becoming a broker. And I'm just going to sort of generalize a little bit. This is a platform business, right? In other words, in a way, it's like Grab here. It's like Uber in the United States. It's a different model slightly, what Blah Blah is doing. But essentially, they're just trying to get a bunch of people to use a product. I talk to companies all the time about what I call alternative forms of distribution, right? Where instead of having somebody call you and say, I know you're going on a trip. Would you like to have insurance for that car you're renting? It's just part of the whole experience, right? I think it's hard for people to understand what embedded means. Even when they book an airline ticket, they don't understand that that insurance that they're being offered isn't really embedded. And it's been like that for a while, but it's going to get embedded in every little piece of your life. Everything. When you go to buy a pair of eyeglasses, the eyeglass, the person who's selling you eyeglasses, who's not an insurance agent and frankly doesn't understand anything about insurance, will say to you, for an extra $2.50, we can insure those eyeglasses. You know, what if, what if your kid steps on them or what if you drop them under your bicycle? At every POS, at every point of sale, this could potentially happen. And I talk to people a lot about if you're building a platform style company, you should always have some kind of embedded insurance built into this. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Um, you know, it's actually great that you explained it this way because you explained the opportunity that's not yet clear for the insurance sector and it's exactly what you explained. So, um, you know, we were, it was the beginning of Astoria VC, we were pitching in front of a lot of um, insurer board members, um, boards across Europe. And actually, we had a meeting at the bank assurance uh, company, right. rather established, I wouldn't mention a name. <laughs> And, and, and we're talking about BlaBlaCar. We haven't checked numbers, uh, but we said BlaBlaCar became an insurance broker. And they said, you know what? What can BlaBlaCar do to us? We have 11 million customers across Europe. Oh my God, I just got and to chill, we, we, uh, and, and, you know, we checked the, uh, we checked the numbers. BlaBlaCar has 15 million drivers. And on top of this, they have 50 million um, people who, who take right um, uh, through the platform. So the potential here is infinite. And BlaBlaCar is just an example. Uber is distributing insurance. Uh, Deliveroo is distributing insurance. Um, uh, right now, our spending... Tesla is, Tesla is actually building their own insurance uh, business. Florian is uh, in touch with um, a, a, a platform for young drivers to do uh, their uh, license, driving license. Um, they are distributing insurance for this very specific risk group, people who you don't want to insure, and they offer them a product. Uh, I don't know, Florian, if you want to elaborate on this, but uh, that's actually a very interesting story. I just wanted to add one point because uh, here it's obviously the interest for the insurance industry itself to have the, the right product at the right time through the right channel. But I would add one point in terms of the, the customer value add for, for, for itself. Um, I, I mean, one key point for this platform is not only to have the relationship and again, the right moment to push the product. They, they have a very deep understanding 
of who their customer are, yeah. what's their risk level, what's their needs. Right. And based on that understanding, they can build product, I mean insurance product, that customer would be more eager to buy. So it's not only pushing product to them, it's designing product that they will like. And then embed this product uh, directly in the point of sale. But I, I strongly believe that there is a case here um, they have a lot of data, they have millions of customers, they have a lot of touch points with them, meaning that they do understand uh, the, the, the rationale behind. And the example I usually take here, because it's quite funny, insurance companies always say insurance is all about data. But if you have a look at what data insurance company own on their customer, the truth is that it's very limited. Obviously, they have the contract data, but it says nothing about who you are. Then if you take home insurance, they know where you live, what's the size of your apartment, and uh, uh, let's say an average of the belongings that you have. That doesn't say anything. My neighbors have exactly the same figures. But again, if you take the banks, for instance, they have the transaction data, which says a lot about how you behave. Right. And then I really think that it, it, it's not, let's say, random that the regulation obliged banks to open these data through open banking. Because these data, which are the customer data, says a lot about the, uh, the customer themselves, their behavior, what they are, their risk appetite, their needs, and so on. So I strongly believe that the first challenge for insurance is much more better understand customer to design the right product. And I believe that embedded is one way uh, to, to maximize this value for the final customers. Again, because we are talking about vertical platforms that knows very well their customer needs. One of the, one of the startups that I spoke to here said, I think this was actually somebody in India said this to me, you know, banking is something you do every day. You can check your bank account, you can spend some money, you can check your balance, you can pay your loan off. But insurance is something you maybe do once or twice a year, right? So there's very little idea inside the insurance company, in, in common insurance companies, about who you really are, like what type of person you actually are, and the things that are important to you. And this is exactly what you were saying. And yet, a company like Blah Blah Car, or a company like Grab here, which are, again, are different businesses, but if you wake up every day and order a grab at 7.30 in the morning and then get another one at 8 o'clock at night, they know you're working from 7.30 and from 8 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock at night and it takes 30 minutes to get to your office. They know exactly where you live. They know the building in which you work. And they know your they work know when to they, they know when to rob your apartment, for Correct. <laughs> they know when to rob your apartment. <laughs> um, and, they, and they know when to rob your office. But the point is they have so much data about you, this idea that they can know the customer, which reminds me, I laughed when, I think it was Jan was saying, what does Blah Blah know about insurance? And every time I think about that, I think about the guys from, I think it was BlackBerry or Microsoft or somebody saying, what are these computer guys just going to walk into the phone business and dominate it? That's not going to happen. <laughs> right and the famous the famous super famous interview with um steve Ballmer, where he says you know we have 100 million customers using our windows mobile software we feel pretty comfortable that we're gonna win this thing and it's 500 dollars completely subsidized and then you know 10 years later microsoft doesn't have a phone business and the iphone dominates global profits for phones so i love when the incumbent companies go what do those guys know about what we do yeah. Anyway. This, the, the, no, no, the silence is actually, you know, th this is a confirmation, I guess, of uh, what we see on the market. It's a, it's a very tough question because it's a question about the future of insurance companies, about reinsurance companies. And, you know, we ask ourselves this question, this question today, an insurance company would have their operations, like someone needs to, to, to resolve claims. They would have the balance sheet. But uh, Florian mentioned we invested in RiskWolf. RiskWolf is, um, is, is a company which is um, building a parametric insurance product. Parametric means that based on data, um, you can pay out the claim uh, without assessing the damage. And you can do it. They are based in Europe, but they're actually operating on the, um, uh, on the Asian market, yep. which means that you don't really need this uh, local operations. 
then the question is about the balance sheet. What's going to happen? Is are actually insurers who know the best how to treat the risks, or will that be reinsurers because they have more data? They they partner with a lot more um, insurers. So. For instance, we're looking at, uh, at the mentioned insurer called Wacom, which is going almost 100% white label, uh, white label right now, yeah. uh, plugging into as many platforms as possible. The, the, you know, there is uh, a, a big shift in the insurance sector. Should we go white label or, or shall we start to build uh, value-added services a bit um, in the direction of what Pingan has, has built with their health platform in China? That's a, that's that's an amazing example, but uh, no one really knows how to answer this question right now. No one wants to, you know, leave their brand um, uh, away. Right. So one of the questions that I ask insurtechs often is, are you building a product? Are you building a business? And if you're building a business, should you not consider becoming a just full stack insurer where you do your own underwriting or you partner with the capacity providers? And you actually build a full stack insurance company, kind of like what Sing Life did in Singapore, right? A company that didn't exist like three or four years ago, and now is a very successful full stack, you know, mobile first technology. They built their own tech. They bought another company for their portfolio, not for their license, to be fair. And it's not even really a startup anymore. And a lot of the companies say to me this, and I'm curious about your opinion here. They're like, we think the insurance industry is so big and that the opportunity for change is so huge, this is coming from the startups, that we feel like we can build a massive business around an accumulation of just a few products and trying to figure out where we fit in the, in the value chain, and we don't have to fit everywhere in that value chain. Yeah? Yeah, Let, let's take figures. Uh, if you take the European insurance industry, it's a, a market of 1.3 trillion euros per year right. of premium. So that's a huge market. And, and I believe that one mistake when uh, corporates are looking at InsurTech and keep saying InsurTech doesn't work is that if you take only 1% of that market, that's already a huge market way be, beyond the uh, usual billion dollar request from the VC uh, right, industry, right, right. meaning that you can build a huge business because there is room for anybody. We discussed embedded. Again, maybe at the end of the day, embedded will still be a limited part of the market in terms of percentage. If you have a look at the market right now as it is, more than 80% of the flow are coming through brokers. But let's take 20%. 20% that are already digitized, for instance, in the UK, which is the most advanced in Europe, 20% is huge. So again, even if we stay at, let's say, 10, 15, maybe 20% of the market that will move online, that's a huge opportunity for startups. Massive. And the last point, which I believe is really important, is that insurance is obviously a stock market, meaning that you have premium that are regularly um, invoiced to the customers. So it's obvious. But the truth is that insurance companies should have a look at the flow, the number of new customers that they gather every year. And here, it's very interesting because InsurTech are already overtaking incumbents. If you have a look at France, you take the tier three or the, the three tier one mutuals in France, sorry. Last year, they, they won close to 60, 70,000 new customers on multi-product lines. At the same time, the biggest B2C InsurTech in France, Luco, doing only home insurance, right. won 100,000. So meaning one player, overtook the, uh, the, 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 the most important mutual in France, again, in terms of flow. Obviously, in terms of stock, they are very limited. But the truth is that by design, the stock will decrease because at the end of the, of the day, people are dying. So the stock is really important, <coughs> obviously, but the flow is what matters in the long run. And, and that's where uh, it's really important. So back to your question, the opportunity is huge. You don't need to have a huge market share to make right. a huge business. You don't need to cover all the value chain to make a huge business. And the truth is that if you have a very specific look uh, at figures, InsurTech are already overtaking taking, uh, incumbents. I love the fact how Florian um, uses numbers. And maybe one additional number to this is remember that 15 to 30% of the insurance market is uh, a commission fee for sales. So brokers, and this is very invisible, but brokers are often 
um, the most the, the richest people in the insurance space. So then the question is, and um, I think this is a never ending debate. Uh, for instance, there is Luco is a great example. Another great example in France is Alan. So the French um, health insurer, which actually was the first company in 30 years to obtain um, full insurance license in France. You know, they are going head to head in terms of how many customers they have. Alan started as an insurance company. And this is where you allow yourself to create additional margin on the um, underwriting profit. Right. So if you know that you will underwrite better, you know, you can grow the business better. You don't need to handle the, the relationship with insurer. No one has an answer. WeFox in Germany bought one insurance from Switzerland to obtain the license. Yeah. So uh, uh, insurtechs are moving into this direction. It just happens on different uh, levels of maturity. You're seeing the same thing happen in the fintech space where some of these insurtechs are actually going out and getting banking licenses faster than some of the existing banks are becoming fintechs. I want to ask you to sort of one more broad question and then I'll let you go because we've been at this for a while and I feel like we could keep going. I'd like to. We should have you come back for sure. Insurance companies, and again, I'm going to generalize just a little bit to make a point, but insurance companies also run gigantic investment businesses, right? Another thing that people don't talk about. So I know this from my trading days. They have all these, they have long-term liabilities, right? So if they sell a life policy to somebody at some point, they've got to have that money come in, but it's normally 10, 15, 20, depending on how the sort of actuarial tables and the life tables play out, how long that is. And they have to match those liabilities with assets, um, from the investment side, right? So they are stock buyers, they're bond buyers and stuff like that. Is there an opportunity to automate for a startup, to automate the math around, here's your insurance portfolio, not your stock or your investment portfolio per se. Here's your expected growth. Here's the age group of people where you have life policies, other policies as well, where you will need income to fund claims versus your investment portfolio, which is large and dynamic, and constantly changing, analyze both of those things in real time, and then help those insurance companies make investment decisions using technology and help automate that process. Because again, there's a bunch of commission paying going on over here. They have plenty of money to invest that they're going to put in here. Is there a way then to combine them and have a, an insure tech company solve that problem as well? That, that's a very interesting question. Uh, and by the way, I, I would say, I'm not sure that right now there is the answer available on the, on the market, but we, if we have a look almost since inception at the wave that came uh, through the insurtech uh, scene, you realize that first it was very focused on B2C opportunities, yep. pure distribution. Then you had a second wave. Again, what I'm talking about is European insurtech scene. First wave B2C, second wave very enterprise software, but again, at high level for detection, uh, a, a bit of self-care in the claim management, a bit of tools, augmented uh, insurance uh, tools for uh, distributors, meaning brokers or agents. And then we are, I believe, entering the third wave, which is unbundling all the value chain and going after this kind of very specific need from the market. Uh, so it, it started with commercial lines, it started with actuaries, it started with underwriting that we uh, right now see uh, increasing with, the, with um, let's say computer vision in claim. So the more we advance in the, uh, in, in the time, the more we realize that entrepreneurs are leveraging technology to tackle very specific needs of, of that industry and going after this kind of, not detail, but less obvious uh, yeah, less, pain yeah, points. More opaque opportunities. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, and still, and that's what I wa wanted to mention. Again, back to the size of the insurance market, even these non-obvious pain points, these less uh, easy to address pain points, there is a lot of money to make. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think you're, so there, there are plenty of companies in Europe that are doing this kind of data analysis, like hasty.ai, that are trying to look, that use computer vision, use artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to do some analysis on physical products and then try to decide a whole bunch of things about them, not just their condition, but other things as well. So yeah, very interesting. Something that you may not have been able to do just five years ago. And it looks like you want to add something. 
you know, I, you, you threw an example, and I think that there are a few other examples. We've seen maybe two or three startups which are addressing um, uh, the topic of uh, reserving. Uh, so it's 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 closer to what you say. Basically, yep. how much do you need to put aside to pay out the claims? Um, and uh, already, when you have a portfolio of risk, you can um, you can build the risk profile on the entire portfolio and then risk by risk basis. When you have uh, risk by risk basis and you know how to you know optimize, better assess, um, then you always find some margin. You know, the, the, the topic here is very um, interesting. What's very challenging is to what extent insurers will want to pay uh, success fees for such models. You know, will they want to share the, the, the underwriting profit that they do thanks to you or not? Um, that's something that will uh, require more maturity from the market. Yeah, agreed. And look, they're already paying for a ton of products on the investment side, right? If they're, if they do you know, if they check to see if their portfolios are mirroring what the MSCI indices say, or if they're really tracking topics, or if they're really tracking the NASDAQ, right, to see how their portfolios are performing against their benchmarks, they're still paying for products like that. I mean, I know that for a fact. So if they could consolidate all of that into one sort of overall tech platform that can do some of that for them, but then can do more, I think they'll definitely pay for that as well. Yeah. Let's, let's keep fingers crossed for this direction to come. <laughs> Okay, guys. Look, I want to thank both of you for coming on and doing this today, Florian Grayo and Jan Castri, the founding partners of Astoria VC. I think we said this before we started recording. I think we could have gone on for a couple more hours, but let's leave a little bit on the table. And hopefully you gentlemen will be able to come back on the show and talk with us again in, in six months or so. It'd be great to have you. And the other thing I'll say is, if you know any other great companies that are doing things on the cutting edge in the insurance space, you must in Europe. Let's get them on the show. Anyway, thank yeah. you both very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. And we'll certainly do. And uh, to everyone who is listening to us, uh, think about us as gatekeepers to Europe. We were happy to open the gates to show you what happens. And uh, the more we educate the market, the, the more players we bring, the, you know, the, the, the cake will be bigger. Um, so we really invite you to have a look at, uh, at our local markets. So maybe, Jan, you can tell people how they can get in touch with you if they'd like to. Uh, yeah, sure. So you can uh, Florian. You will find on Twitter very easily because he's uh, he has uh, he's what they say an influencer, and that's true. He's a one-man uh, PR agency on uh, you know at night. Um, you can find us on on LinkedIn. You can find us on scouting.astoria.io or at astoria.vc. All the channels possible. Thank you very much once again, Michael. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot.